So let me ask you this straight up. If somebody gets a positive COVID diagnosis, is it a death sentence? No. What are the, what are the statistics here? You know, well over 99% survival. The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson here and welcome to the show. And it's one I've been waiting for, we've all been waiting for. Today we are talking with Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough is an American cardiologist. He's editor-in-chief of the journals, reviews in cardiovascular medicine and cardiorenal medicine. In addition to being an MD, he holds a master's in public health from the University of Michigan. He's an author on over 1,000 research publications, holds an H index of over, anything over 100 is really quite an accomplishment. His is 117. In other words, we are talking today with an exceptionally talented and brilliant cardiologist in a deeply principled man whose entire life and profession has been permanently impacted by what he's learned about COVID and saving patients' lives. Peter, welcome to the program. It's been long overdue. I'm so glad to have you on. Chris, it's a deep honor to join your program. I've been following you the entire time through the pandemic, learning from you, uh, as so many doctors have across the world. Oh, me teaching you? That that seems impossible, but uh, I've learned that I just, I'm a guy with a lot of time on his hands, so I just love researching stuff and figuring out how to communicate it. And um, as you know, that passion has gotten me in trouble, and that's what we, <laughs> we need to talk about today. Uh, it was um, January 23rd, 2020, I put out my first alert that something was coming, and that was just based on watching China's, you know, put a ring fence around Wuhan and shut it down. I know the Chinese don't do these things lightly. So I started talking about it on February 5th, my wiki page, which had been up for 12 years, I was taken down for being a non-notable person. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was abolished because I, apparently I was, I, anyway, I ran in, I ran into a foul of something. So my question to you starts here. When, how concerned were you about COVID right at the outset? And how long did it take you to realize that, our response to it as a country was maybe not ideal. Chris, I did not have your um, prescience at all. I was uh, caught by surprise. I heard about, you know, a few individuals in China uh, getting ill in January. I didn't think much of it. You know, China had had other types of viral infections in these various um, uh, markets. And uh, we know that SARS-1 came out of China. And I remember telling my colleagues, I said, you know, I think this is going to be the biggest uh, blowover, this biggest uh, scare that turns out to, to be basically not uh, important to populations, or it's going to be Armageddon. And I couldn't tell which one and things moved into March. And it was around March or so we started uh, closing things down. I was the um, you know, director of a training program. We started to figure out how to manage the trainees. And, uh, and through March, what happened is myself and actually our chief of cardiology, we decided to honestly really take matters into our own hands. We applied for an FDA new drug application. We wrote a protocol in order to try to use some drug therapy to prevent COVID-19 in our workers. I was part of the health system task force calls every week. And I can tell you, I think we had gotten into April. And one time on these calls, Chris, I asked the question, are we going to start to treat this illness? Or are we just going to let these patients pour into the hospital and you could hear a pin drop? Hmm. 
Hmm. So somewhere around April, you realized maybe there were some treatments. And, and uh, I, I mean, I'm wondering about your whole wake-up process there, because I, we were all, nobody knew what to do at first. And, and we saw the, the horrible things coming out of, say, Italy and then New York City. And, and, you know, people were going on to ventilators and just crashing. But from a clinical standpoint, how long before you realized, hey, maybe there are some things we can do here? Well, we saw our first case at our medical center, first fatal case. It was a man about my age who uh, flew from New York to Dallas. He pretty much was sick in DFW airport. He's brought to our center. And uh, we watched him after being admitted rapidly go into this multi-organ system failure. And then ultimately we had a series of, of publications. We had studied how uh, the respiratory failure, it basically at some point in time led to right ventricular collapse and, uh, and just basically a form of a pulseless electrical activity, cardiac death. Uh, we had uh, published a, a case report of a woman again, about my age, uh, admitted uh, with COVID-19 and developed a markedly prolonged QT interval in the ICU and had torsade to point and required resuscitation. And um, in fact, that, that individual interestingly received no hydroxychloroquine. It was just you know ICU prolonged uh, QT interval uh, that was related to, and we had postulated that was related to interleukin-6, kind of the lead cytokine. But what we had learned in a matter of a few weeks was the following that the virus seemed to have a prolonged viral replication phase. It basically shaded in a cytokine storm or a, a syndrome of inflammation led by interleukin-6, the lead cytokine in this unusual cytokine storm. And that actually shaded into a prothrombotic state, a form of microthrombosis that occurred. And the microthrombosis settled into the lungs and was responsible for the hypoxemia we were seeing. And we were communicating, uh, you know, our teams had divided into these inpatient uh, teams that, you know, ICU, our wards became kind of closed to anybody else. If my patient developed COVID-19, I couldn't see them myself. I couldn't go into the COVID unit, uh, but we were communicating. We had a series of noon conferences, grand rounds, the uh, task force meeting calls. And I was on one call with the NIH, the NIDDK. And I'll never forget, I think hundreds of people, uh, we're on that call. It was led by Dr. Robbie Starr uh, of the uh, NIDDK at NIH. And we were just sharing information. What are you seeing? What are you uh, talking? Uh, what, do you, what you know? And then when we learned about uh, uh, lines, uh, dialysis lines uh, uh, clotting, we were learning about fatal strokes and these horrific thrombotic deaths. And so we had put it together. The Italian connection was important. I had great collaborations with uh, Italy. And uh, several of my key contacts there were part of the Coracle Research Network. And so we started working with the coracle investigators to, as rapidly as we could, publish our observations about what was going on. So somewhere right around there, you're starting to realize maybe some, um, uh, there are some treatments. I, I remember I caught, for whatever reason, I saw very early on Pierre Corey, even before his ivermectin testimony, there was a methylprednisolone or a corticosteroid um, talk that he gave. He's like, listen, people, we can do something. And it was amazing the amount of pushback he got and... Uh, I saw other doctors really piling on, telling him what a horrible person he was for, for having made that. But he's a obviously an ICU intensivist, and he's uh, very, very skilled at watching patient charts. And, and he explained it to me, look, Chris, there's trajectories, right? Uh, somebody's on a trajectory, and you can see it. Their oxygen sats are doing this, their heart rate's doing that, their blood pressure, whatever. You know, they have a trajectory, and then you give something, and it goes the other way. That's all the information he needs to know that he's doing something that's working or doing something that's not working is the trajectory. He said it was completely obvious, but, uh, but Peter, I was astonished at how long it took for the medical system in the midst of a pandemic when we're supposed to be throwing all of our best and brightest at this thing, how long it took for that clinical insight 
to penetrate. And, and it took a big RCT coming out of the UK where they went with dexamethasone, six milligrams, you know, Pierre's using like 120 of, of methylprednisolone. Like I, I watched this and I just couldn't understand how it, at a moment of severe urgency, why it took so long for even basic insights to somehow come through on the clinical setting. What, what was happening there? Well, you know, we had no rapid communication infrastructure. Um, you know, I think our National Institutes of Health uh, honestly could have held uh, virtual Bethesda meetings. You know, as a cardiologist, uh, you and I uh, recall that when there's a question of interest, uh, many times there'll be a meeting in Bethesda, Maryland, and we all come open meeting academics, uh, government officials, uh, pharmaceutical device industry. And we actually try to, you know, put our scholarship on an, on a problem and get a solution. Everything was suspended in the pandemic. We are all suddenly in, in free floating isolation. And it was interesting. So I was working with the Coracle network completely independently of Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick, who were forming the frontline critical care consortium that was completely independent of Vladimir Zelenko in Monroe, New York, uh, Yvette Lozano here in Dallas. I, I didn't even know about what Yvette was doing. We had uh, Brian Tyson and George Freed out in South Central California. Uh, we had Didier Riolt in Marseille, France. And then we had uh, Dr. Barentios in South America, Dr. Chetty in South Africa. We were all working independently. This is so interesting, Chris. And, uh, and feverishly looking for any, uh, uh, you know, it just leads in the literature on where we could go with this. Um, and uh, what I told you in kind of the, the group that I had formed, uh, our rules were the following. We knew that large randomized trials would take two to four years. Okay. We knew that was going to be too long. We knew guidelines were going to take a couple of years after large randomized trials. So, you know, guidelines, they were out the window. We weren't going to wait for them. So we actually took what's called the precautionary principle. That is that, you know, this is a mass casualty event. We must do something. If we do nothing, the mass casualties will continue to mount. We must do something. And so we looked for drugs that had a signal of benefit. We knew it was a complicated, at least triphasic illness, and that we would use drug combinations just like we did uh, pretty early on in HIV. It's been done in hepatitis C. We even do it for complicated bacterial infections. We use multiple drugs. And we look for drugs that would attenuate viral replication help treat the cytokine storm, you had mentioned steroids, uh, and then uh, manage the thrombosis. And we thought if we could put together a program like that, we had a reasonable chance of reducing hospitalization and death. What we saw in the hospital was really alarming. You know, patients would come on the mechanical ventilator, they wouldn't come off. We, we, I joined the Stop COVID Research Network out of the Brigham and Women's Hospital. So immediately we started getting data, which was wonderful. Uh, that was led by David Leaf. I give him a lot of credit for that. And we had, we'd actually saw ICU mortality, even into the pandemic. If someone's sick enough to be in the ICU, you know, the 30-day mortality was like 30%. Some risk groups was even higher. We learned from multiple institutions, Stop COVID, but also Oxford, other groups that the virus was amenable to risk stratification, meaning that the infection in someone 80 years old was quite different than someone who was 20 years old. And so the principles of risk stratification, those principles of um, contagion control, the principles of reducing the inoculum, the amount of virus exposed, and then multi-drug treatment, that became the formation of our first paper in the American Journal of Medicine. We had gotten the ideas together through May and June and then finalized things. I had a lot of authors. So we had authors from UCLA, Emory, myself in Dallas, uh, Italians from uh, from both Siena as well as from Milan area. It took a lot to coordinate all this. 
Uh, we were going to do New England Journal of Medicine, and we just honestly, we started to see some things we didn't like in the New England Journal of Medicine, as well as Lancet, including fraudulent papers, which we'll get to in a minute. So I said, forget it. I'm going to go to a safe home base, American Journal of Medicine. I talked to Joe Alpert, the editor, about this. We got a very good peer review. We published the paper in American Journal of Medicine. The title of the paper was Pathophysiologic Rationale for the Early Ambulatory Treatment of COVID-19. And that paper rapidly became the most downloaded paper that the American Journal of Medicine had on file. In fact, today, it's still the most downloaded paper for a year, and they publish weekly. So I can tell you, this went by storm. And through this process, through the spring, um, I, you know, through this whole developmental process, I remember I was called by Peter Navarro from the White House. And Peter said, listen, can you help me out? Uh, I've, we've got a hydroxychloroquine supply here. It's being blocked by Rick Bright and some others within uh, the administration. He goes, I, you know, I need some help. Uh, is there a way we could appeal uh, to the FDA on this uh, 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 emergency use authorization on hydroxychloroquine? And, and, and what I had learned is that hydroxychloroquine was, was you know, a drug, you know, not the only drug, but a drug we had in our treatment protocol. And what, was, uh, what the issue was is that there was an emergency use authorization placed on hydroxychloroquine. Now it's already on the market. It doesn't need an EUA. So the EUA was basically a restriction and it was initially restricted to inpatient use. And then with a fraudulent paper from Lancet from uh, a called Surgisphere and actually some uh, authors from Harvard that implied hydroxychloroquine did harm in the hospitals, a completely fraudulent paper. The database made no sense. It was people in their 40s. We don't hospitalize people in their 40s. By the way, there was a similar fraudulent paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on ACE inhibitors from the same group. So, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet had actually already shown the proclivity to publish fraudulent papers from a fraudulent data source. And I can tell you as an editor, you know, I've been an editor for 20 years, Chris, that has never happened under my watch. So I start, we started to see actually complete failure of the trustability of the medical literature. So we chose American Journal of Medicine. I worked very carefully with the editor. We published this paper, became uh, the most frequently downloaded paper uh, uh, in that journal. Uh, I started working with Peter Navarro. I put the letter to try to, uh, we were stuck with the EUA on hydroxychloroquine. I wanted to expand it across the board. That was rejected. Uh, the next thing you know, I started working with uh, the Senate, uh, Senator Ron Johnson, and then some associated senators, uh, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. And then by, by, by the fall of 2020, we had an outpatient treatment protocol, peer reviewed and published. We had a patient guide with that treatment protocol. Uh, we are beginning to organize telemedicine networks because doctors that were not jumping into action treating patients. And then we had set up the U.S. now historic U.S. Uh, Senate testimonies. I led off the first one on November 19th. I reached out to Pierre Corey and J.J. Roster. And it turned out J.J. Roster had actually had the most experience with ivermectin. Uh, we had him lined up for the December 8th uh, Senate testimonies. And these testimonies basically broke the news to America and the world that we could treat COVID-19 with combinations of drugs early. Uh, data came in, it was interesting, from Didier Rialt from France, from Vladimir Zelenko in Monroe, New York, and then Brian Proctor here in Dallas. All three studies showing that early treatment, even our earliest protocols, Chris, were associated with 85% reductions in hospitalization and death compared to fair comparator groups, whether they be uh, representative uh, groups that were not treated uh, or uh, from calculated risks from the Cleveland Clinic calculator, which came, uh, came on in terms of calculating the risk of hospitalization. There weren't randomized trials, but we didn't have time for randomized trials. And you know, two years later, 
Do you know there's not a single large multi-drug randomized clinical trial even planned in COVID-19? And I went on Tucker Carlson uh, earlier this year and I told him, I said, Tucker, do you know to this day, Harvard doesn't have a protocol? Duke does not have a protocol. Mayo Clinic does not have a protocol. Do you know these iconic institutions don't have a single idea on how to treat COVID-19 at home to prevent hospitalization and death? It is a colossal lapse, a colossal blunder of academic medicine to not apply any intellectual thought or effort into trying to prevent hospitalization and death. It's inexplicable. Uh, beyond inexplicable, and and just to, to close up that 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 Lancet paper that was a fraud within 48 hours, I knew that was a fraud. And Peter, this isn't my field. I just looked at it. I'm just a guy, right? And I I read a few things on Twitter, and somebody said, "Hey, does it make sense that this little company, which has six people operating out of a storefront in Chicago, would have data feeds to 691 hospitals?" Let me explain what a data feed is. So I talked to somebody who is actually in the medical field of saying, oh, no, 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 every hospital has their own data system and they don't really talk and there's a lot of scrubbing. And to even get one data feed to one hospital, all these HIPAA laws and you know, database uh, uh, shielding and, and, and then harmonization practices, this looks like a million bucks to set up one of these. They claim to have 691 data feeds, including to hospitals all over Africa, where they were getting like really sophisticated um, heart pulsimetry data out of hospitals that probably didn't even have a machine for that. And I just looked at this with it. I was like, this is a fraud. How does how do the editors at Lancet not see that if I could? You know, I looked at it, too. And also the timing. They had cases so early in the pandemic. How could they have organized all the data? How could they have gotten IRB approvals? and IRB exemptions, how did all this uh, come together? And the mean age was in the 40s. And that's, we were housewising people in their 80s, Chris. I knew yep. in a second it was a fraudulent paper. And I can tell you as an editor, you know, there are multiple reviewers assigned. I've published in Lancet. I've published in New England Journal of Medicine. There's multiple reviewers assigned. There's associate editors. There's editorial meetings and finally editorial decisions. It's a high bar. It is a high bar. It, it honestly, Chris, in New England Journal of Medicine, remember the topic there was ACE inhibitors. It was not such a charged topic. The topic in Lancet was hydroxychloroquine. It looked like there was a breakdown. It looked like it was actually intentional. Yeah. All right. So, so let me ask you this straight up. If somebody gets a positive COVID diagnosis, is it a death sentence? No. What are the, what are the statistics here? You know, well over 99% survival, which is absolutely wonderful. It means that, Chris, the most important thing is this is amenable to risk stratification. It was the very first thing I put in my paper and has been shown now by multiple studies. We don't need to treat everybody. The estimates are about 25% of adults uh, have enough risk to be treated. And what I mean by that is age over 50, start adding comorbidities like obesity, diabetes, heart and lung disease, kidney disease, prior cancer, we can actually get to an over 1% risk for the composite uh, variable of hospitalization and death. And what, what we said is, listen, over 1%, you know, that's enough to actually move the needle and let's do something. Uh, now, clearly we can get to, you know, if we got to somebody in their 80s and they had heart failure and, and uh, chronic leukemia and lung disease, you know, we can get to risks of 40 and 50 and 60% in an individual of death. Uh, and what we know, our CDC has told us that the majority of people have actually died of COVID-19, about 90% actually have 
conditions that were also, in a sense, comorbid or co-fatal conditions. A great example is uh, recently Colin Powell died, uh, a former uh, Secretary of State. You know, he had kind of a very advanced multiple myeloma. Uh, He had taken the vaccines. The vaccines had failed. And in the end, he's in his 80s and he dies of COVID. And, you know, he could have died of myeloma later in the year. This would characterize about 90% of the COVID deaths in the United States, just like Colin Powell, whether vaccinated or not. And then also recently, Italy has just reclassified all their deaths. The number they came up with 97% of deaths. So what people have been keyed in on is younger people who have died, which is very rare, but they die dramatic deaths and uh, they don't have other comorbidities. And then people start to, in a sense, develop a conceptual fear of COVID-19 that, wow, I could be that next very rare case. Hey, everybody out here in what we call public land. This is where we're going to have to end this interview right now because Peter and I are going to talk about some things that uh, maybe we know are a little bit sensitive. So if you want to see part two of this, if you want to find out what we're going to continue this conversation about, which, by the way, is really important information, come on by peakprosperity.com, and that's where you'll find the rest of this interview. I would love to be able to offer it to you here out in public, but we still live in a land of censorship and a place where data can't be freely discussed by two doctors without running afoul of whatever the censorship machine is. So that's all we have for you today here. And if you want to see part two, come on by Peak Prosperity. Until next time, I'm Dr. Chris Martinson.